0: i'm aaron meyer this week's producer you're listening to the 19.9 podcast our guest is a man who knows acc basketball as well as anyone some even consider him the unofficial commissioner of the acc
1: so my friend and i get up and and go up to Lewis and his bandmates he go, guys, great show, great show last night. And Valvano all of a sudden stands up and he's waving his arms. He goes, no, 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 no. I'm the show here at the Final Four, not them. David Teal of the Richmond Times-Dispatch has been covering the Atlantic Coast Conference across five different decades.
0: It has amazing tales about Coach K, Dean Smith, Michael Jordan, and on up to the Zion hype train.
1: And, and one thing that I think embodied that was the day that Coach Smith broke Adolph Rupp's record. Now, on to the show. David, thanks for
0: joining us here on the podcast.
1: My pleasure, Danny. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm I'm geeked to
0: talk ACC hoops, and you know we are, you know we had a pretty odd 2020-21 season due to COVID, and, and I think you're back in the thick of it covering hoops now. So how are you enjoying this uh, quasi return to normal as we're in the thick of the conference basketball slate right now?
1: Well, I think I enjoy most, and I probably speak for my colleagues, players, and coaches is the return of fans. I mean, it was just so peculiar last season to sit in an arena and hear the squeak of sneakers on the floor or piped-in crowd noise. (laughs) And, yeah, we were happy to have competition, but it's just not the same without the student sections and the bands and the alums and people raising cane and complaining about the officials and cheering buzzer beaters. It's just not.
0: No, you know, it's funny. We're recording this here on January 14th. And, you know, just yesterday I was watching um, Oregon at UCLA and UCLA is playing stadium. And, you know, you kind of go back and you you realize how grateful it is. You know, the the college game is very much enhanced by the fans, the band, and just the euphoria of the event. And, and, And unfortunately we lost it during COVID and Here's to uh, maybe it, tick it back upward, and we get back to some normalcy on that front.
1: Sure, hope so.
0: Yeah. So you know, given the the wealth of memories and insights you have on the ACC and its last forty years or so, I, I got to tell you, it's pretty difficult to know where to start with you. So I, <laughs> I thought we'd kind of begin this adventure in a little bit of a different way. And I'm just gonna maybe we'll do some free association here. I'm gonna name a team or a program or a player or a coach and maybe you can share a notable memory or recall an interaction or, or a nice anecdote. When you think of when you hear this person's name or this coach or this program, what do you think of? So uh, if that sounds good with you, that's the way I'd like to roll here. And sure. I'd like to start with the individual who, um, you know, really had such an outsized presence in the ACC and that's Dean Smith. When you think of Dean Smith, what do you think of?
1: Danny, Dean Smith had the most incredible memory, not of any coach I've ever encountered, but almost of any person. His his recall, even in the latter stages of his career, of specific games, moments, players, and, and the precise year, it, it was just amazing. And, and one thing that I think embodied that was, The day that Coach Smith broke Adolph Rupp's record for career coaching victories. It was in the NCAA tournament in Winston-Salem at Wake Forest Joel Coliseum. And so many former players and managers and support folks were there, of course, for the moment. And Dean's up at the podium after the game. And Dean never wanted it to be about him. He hated the fuss. It was always for Dean about team. But he started talking, Danny, about managers. And he started naming them all from over the years. And I I think he went through a litany, certainly not of every one. But I think he probably could have recited the names of the manager's in, in his program over the decades, it was, it was remarkable. Yes, time. Dean Edward Smith time. We won a disciplined team, and I was kind of a dictator. I hope you could say maybe a nice dictator sometimes. Hold it, Larry. You're talking and I'm talking. When does that
0: happen? You know, we, you think about the four corners offense uh, that he kind of pioneered, and when you hear about this unique anecdote, you know his memory. It's, it, that's what kind of sticks. That's pretty interesting. You know, I'm a Chicago guy. I grew up not far from from Coach K's world. Uh, when you so, and I confess, I'm a Duke fan. So, Coach K, what do you think of when you hear when you hear his name? What do you think of?
1: I think of uh, two encounters with with Mike. And as I probably will you're called, often you're a during.
0: Mike, so you're pretty cool.
1: <laughs> as I probably will several times during our conversation day, I'm going to date myself. <laughs> uh, I covered Mike Shashevsky's first NCAA tournament game as a coach. This was the 1984 West Regional in Pullman, Washington. And Duke was sent out there. And I was a Cub reporter for the Fayetteville Times in, in North Carolina. And the Blue Devils lost to a Washington team led by Detlef Shrimp and Christian Velp. Really good team. And it was really close game, lost late. And there were no formal press conferences and podiums and such. But Mike just came out of the locker room and was talking to a group of us and he said the operation was a success but the patient died <laughs> and you know it's that it, it, it's it's what you would expect someone to say when they had belief in their system but it just it didn't work in that particular moment and obviously that belief in himself and then AD Tom Butters belief in coach Shevsky was very well placed. And then I'll take you many years after that. Mike was kind enough to have me on his serious XM radio show. It was just prior to an ACC tournament. And he just wanted to talk about history of the event and what it all means. And a week later, I got a handwritten thank you note from Mike for appearing on the show. Keep in mind, he was preparing his team for the NCAA tournament at this point. But yet he still, t- you know, it probably took him, what, 60, 90 seconds. But he he took that time to, to send a note. And I just thought it was so gracious. and I was so struck by it, and I've always kept it.
0: You know, when when I think about Shershevsky, you know, one thing I think about is so when he comes in in 1980, he actually takes over a team that was ranked number one. Uh, I think they went to the Elite Eight uh, in the last year Bill Foster's uh, tenure there. But Shershevsky comes in, they go 17 and 13 his first year, 10 and 17 his next year, mm-hmm. 11 and 17 his third year, and 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 the program stuck with him, the administration stuck with him. You know, you think about coaches today. I don't know if a coach could come into a blue blood program like that, have those results in his first three years and survive it.
1: Agreed. And it's, it's, it's actually very similar to the first gentleman we discussed, Dean Smith. Dean was once hung in effigy in <laughs> Chapel Hill early, early in his tenure. Before he became dean and, you know, and ran off the most remarkable streak of consistent success, literally decades in a row of finishing first or second in the ACC, which was the toughest league in the country. It was remarkable. But, yeah, I mean, Mike always goes back and the ACC network did a documentary on it. The the class that saved Coach K that re- recruiting group of Allery and Dawkins and Billis. And you
0: know, early on in your sports writing career, uh, David, you had um, one of the greatest what if cases in basketball history, and that's Len Bias. So oh. again, when you think about Len Bias, what comes to mind on that front? Because that'd be pretty jarring for young sports, writer. I presume you had to write a few stories about that. What was that like? Oh, from
1: television nine. Washington's News Station. This is Eyewitness News at noon. A local success story took a tragic turn this morning. Len Bias, the Maryland University basketball star, on his way to becoming a world champion, Boston Celtic, died of an apparent heart attack today at Leland Memorial Hospital in Prince George's County. Lenny Bias in this- here's Gatlin's record-breaking assist right here you watch bias just push the elevator button for a higher floor get up over top of everybody else it was it was beyond tragic and Danny I went to I went to high school in suburban Baltimore I as a kid went to Lefty Drizel's basketball camp at the University of Maryland we stayed in the same dorm where Len Bias died, and when I got the phone call in my apartment that morning that this had happened, it was it was as jarring a moment as I've had as as a reporter. It was, and just that kind of connection to the Maryland program and having watched it. Over the years and having seen him in person and what a generational talent he was, and to think that he would never wear that Celtic green, it was it was heartbreaking
0: Was, was that a challenge for you to cover as a from the reporting side?
1: Well, I didn't really cover it from a reporting side I, I, I think I wrote a column j- just about that personal connection in, in, in the tragedy of, I, certainly wasn't, you know, up there covering the police investigation and such and um, how they were, you know, looking into the, you know, cocaine connection and all that and and, and cause of death. And then, you know, eventually that cost lefty Drizelle his job at Maryland. And then the program was changed forever.
0: Yeah, one of the other generational talents in the ACC uh, was Tim Duncan. Yeah. What do you think about him?
1: Old school. Great <laughs> word. And, for and, and old school, old soul. And what a unique recruiting story that Dave Odom gets a tip about this tall cat down in the Virgin Islands <laughs> – And, you know, and, and they go down and, and see him and, you know, he, he really, when they first evaluated him, couldn't play much. He was, he was a swimmer. He was, he wasn't a basketball player. And, and to think that in, in four years there, he developed an, you know, ACC player of the year and a a first team all American and now a, a Basketball Hall of Famer. I forget how many rings he, he won in in San Antonio. And all of it happened. It never changed him. He was still just this chill, unaffected. Stardom never got to Tim Duncan because he, he, he really didn't want it. He just wanted to play. Was was that pretty
0: clear to you as you know you're covering the ACC in the ni- in in the mid 1990s when he's there at Wake Forest was it pretty clear not just on the court that he excelled but was it clear in your interactions with you be in press conferences and the like that he was a different kind of cat
1: Absolutely he he was just so understated he he really didn't enjoy the the interactions with with media he much preferred that Tony Rutland or Randolph Childress ser- serve as, as the team spokesman. And, and, and they were all that they were more than willing to, they were, they were the extroverts and and Tim w- was the introvert and Dave Odom is about as extroverted as a, a coach as you could ever encounter. So he, he kind of had that, but Duncan did had that buffer of, Childress, Odom, Rutland to, to kind of shield him from the media.
0: Yeah. You know, those of us who've seen the great 30 for 30 documentary on the the NC NC state championship team, you're, you, you make a nice appearance in that, don't you? And (laughs) obviously the central figure in that story is Jim Valvano, uh, the late Jim Valvano. What memory sticks out about him?
1: It was my first final four. I was I was working in Fayetteville and got sent out to the West Regionals in Ogden, Utah, where NC State was in the Sweet 16 and as was Virginia and Ralph Sampson. And they end up meeting in the Elite 8 in what turned out to be Sampson's final college game and NC State wins and goes on to Albuquerque in the Final 4. And a bunch of us just went straight from Ogden to Albuquerque. And so every day we would go to the team to the NC State Hotel and just hang out and and talk to folks. And one morning we're sitting there in the lobby with Valvano, a group of North Carolina reporters. And the night before, a reporter buddy and I had gone to see Huey Lewis and the news at okay, some. now you're dating yourself. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I, hey, I get it. <laughs> at, at some club in Albuquerque. And we're sitting there talking to Valvana. And in walks Huey and the band. So my friend and I get up and, and go up to Lewis and his bandmates. They go, guys, great show, great show last night. And Valvano all of a sudden stands up and he's waving his arms. He goes, "No, no, no, no! I'm the show here at the <laughs> Final Four, not them." He, J- Jimmy, he was the anti dean. He he wanted that spotlight and he he craved it for himself and his program. And God rest his soul that. The, the, the celebration, the video of him running around the court after Lorenzo Charles' stick back looking for somebody to hug is as a, a beautiful a moment as you'll ever see after a game.
0: Yeah, and, you know, those NC State guys – do you cross paths with them a lot, and and if so, what are some of the things they kind of immediately go to? I
1: I really don't see him much. You know, Terry Gannon's in in broadcasting, but really not in 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 basketball. Um, Derek Wittenberg and and Sydney, you know, Sydney Lowe was was the coach at at NC State for a while, but 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 no longer. Uh, I, I I see. Coach V's brother, Bob Valvano, because he does Louisville radio. See, see him occasionally. I remember doing kind of a, a retrospective on on one of the anniversaries of of the '83 championship team, and sitting down with Bob and, and and talking about his memories of of that time, and even even talking to Dane Subtle, the Pepperdine player who's who was like a ninety percent free throw shooter for his career, but missed the front end of a one and one in either the first or second round against NC State. And had he made them, there would have been no cardiac pack, no final four, no national championship. And I talked to Dane Solve about it, and he was like, you know, I'm fine with it. Look at the history that happened because of this. Look at the good that came of Jimmy V becoming a celebrity and a spokesman for cancer research, and his perspective on that was so cool to listen to.
0: Yeah, you know, the basketball gods at work there. I want to ask you about one more team that I think is pretty, you know, personally, I think is pretty underrated in ACC lore, and it was a team that, you know, had national championship aspirations and certainly I think was in the, in the mix to run it if it wasn't for UNLV, and that's Georgia Tech's Lethal Weapon 3 team.
1: No good. Rebounded by Anderson on the dribble. Four seconds. Anderson going all the way. Puts the shot. It is good. <laughs> Senior guard Brian Oliver has enjoyed an outstanding career. As has junior forward Dennis Scott but it took a freshman from New York named Kenny Anderson to tie this group together to bring Georgia Tech to within shooting range of the Final Four. He's just a freshman, but the Final Four has been his wish too. When I was a little kid, I always dreamed about going to the Final Four, and now I sit here one game away from it, and it would mean the world to me uh, just to be a part of it. Today's winner moves on to Denver, and someone's dream will come true. It was a really fun bunch to cover, and I was actually fortunate enough, Danny, to be in New Orleans when they won the Elite Eight game to to make the Final Four in Denver, along in you know, 1990, along with Duke and Vegas and Arkansas there for 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 the semifinals. And yeah, think about the
0: four coaches in that Final Four. Right. I mean, just vibrant personalities, unique personalities, dynamic personalities. I mean, four real strong: Tarkanian, uh, Nolan Richardson, Richardson. Bobby Kremens,
1: Mike Shashevsky. Yeah, and I'll I'll tell you a quick Kremens story. And this was before Lethal Weapon Three, but Kremens was he was he was an unbelievable character. And Kremens, before he got to Georgia Tech, had a history with the ACC tournament, having been a player. For Frank McGuire at South Carolina. And one of the Gamecocks' greatest disappointments was one year losing in the ACC final as the number one team in the country when only one team from the ACC went to the NCAA tournament, and that was the ACC tournament champion. And Cremens was just so distraught. And he felt like he had let his team down. He was the starting point guard. And then very early in his tenure at Georgia Tech in Atlanta, no less, they win the ACC tournament, and it was such a moment for Bobby and you know Mark Price and Bruce Dalrymple; those were his starting guards. And I went down to Atlanta the next year to have a sit down with Bobby, and he was so scattered and so distracted. And we we sat in the cafeteria there in the athletics center. And I could I could tell the interview wasn't going great, and I was like, "Oh, this is this is going to turn out to be a waste of time." But after a while, he got a little engaged, and then he said, "Hey, what are you doing later?" I said, "I don't know." He goes, "Want to come to practice?" I said, "Sure, I'll come to practice." So I go to practice. I'm I'm watching, and then after practice, he says, "You got anything to do now?" I said, "No." He goes, "You like saunas?" I'm like. I guess. He goes, come on. And the next thing you know, I'm sitting in a sauna with Bobby Crimmins just hanging out. And it was so bizarre, but so much fun.
0: Yeah. They they don't make them like that anymore, do they?
1: No. (laughs) So, you know, we
0: just spent some time here talking about some of the bigger names and storylines in ACC history. And, you know, it's rich and it's deep and it's filled with characters. You know, you've... The ACC has been your wheelhouse all these years, um, but you've, of course, interacted with SEC and Big Ten and Big East basketball, and, and those have their own unique characteristics, but what do you think kind of really makes ACC basketball different than the rest?
1: Danny, it's a great question, and I th- I think it goes back to the formation of the conference in, in the early 50s an offshoot of the Southern Conference, and it was very North Carolina-centric, of course, with, with Wake Forest and NC State and Duke and North Carolina, where basketball has always been important and was important in the Southern Conference. And then very early on in its history, the ACC produces not only the 1957 national champion in North Carolina, but an undefeated national champion one that at the final four won back-to-back triple overtime games with no day off in between and the championship game was against wilt chamberlain and kansas i mean that's about as storybook a start to a conference history as you can imagine and i i think that just in of itself started to forge this identity and this passion along Tobacco Road for ACC basketball.
0: You know, and that's so interesting. And so the ACC, I think, is most identified with basketball. Sure. Uh, The SEC, we think about football, I think, first and foremost. The ACC, I think we we go straight to basketball. And, you know, it's had some success in football over the years, but the league's success on the hardwood really trumps anything on the gridiron. And yet, football has really driven some of the conference's evolution over the years. When you think about most notably the addition of, of programs like Miami and BC and Syracuse, Louisville, Pitt, how is that expansion, which is really driven by football, and you cover football too, so you see it from that side, how has that
1: changed the tenor of basketball in the league? Well, it goes back even, even before those expansions, Danny, to, to the league bringing in Florida State.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. In, in,
1: in the early 90s. And Gene Corrigan, who was then the commissioner, was really prescient in understanding that football was very quickly becoming the economic engine that drives college athletics. Yes, the ACC's wheelhouse is basketball, but to survive economically, it's football really needed some juice and bringing in Florida state there in, in in the early nineties with, you know, when Bobby Bowden had it rolling and then followed by Miami, Virginia tech, then Boston college. Yeah. it, It was football driven. And what did it do to basketball? Well, it grew the conference so large as most other conferences has, have grown, that the traditional double round-robin schedule vanished. I mean, the the ACC, it, it used to be so, not regimented, but so routine that not only would you play every team twice during the regular season, you would play them in the same order in the first and second halves of the season. That's how that's how structured it was, and how routine it was, and and the fans became accustomed to that. So it was very jarring when all of a sudden, okay, what Duke and NC State aren't playing twice this season? How does that compute? V- Virginia and Duke aren't aren't you know Virginia and North Carolina aren't going to be. Playing twice after all those epic battles between Jordan and Perkins, and Sampson and Wilson—really, that's not going to happen anymore. Yeah, you know, that's that's the price you pay.
0: <laughs> the has it, has it been worth it? I think that's an interesting question. Has the price been worth it?
1: There was no choice. The ACC wouldn't have survived otherwise. Yes.
0: You know, the ACC, that's a conference with two very defined blue bloods atop its hierarchy in Duke and Carolina. And there is success to be found in all the other schools, no question. But at the top of the mountain in that conference, it's Duke and Carolina. How does that shape or influence the dynamic of the league?
1: Well, number one, it's the greatest rivalry in college basketball and one that almost always delivers – and Hall of Fame coaches and players we could we could go on and on, but it, it it does create the impression sometimes that Duke and Carolina run the ACC. And for years it was governed by a commissioner with ties to those schools. Gene Corrigan went to Duke. John Swafford went to North Carolina. John Swafford the longest tenured commissioner in, in ACC history. But the ironic thing is is that no two schools opposed expansion more than Duke and North Carolina. But they were overruled by their conference colleagues. So this so this idea that somehow Duke and North Carolina controlled the ACC was patently false, because if they did, this expansion would not have occurred.
0: Where where was the dissent between Duke and North Carolina? Why didn't they want expansion?
1: They wanted to keep it smaller be- because of basketball. Interesting.
0: Interesting. You know, we're going to circle back to the ACC in a moment to round out the show. But, you know, you have covered you've been in Virginia all these years. And, and I want to step out of the ACC for a bit and leverage one of Virginia's most storied prep prep athletes of all time, and that's Allen Iverson. When did he first hit your radar?
1: The summer before his junior year at Bethel High School. He was playing for Boo Williams Summer League in the AAU Nationals in Winston-Salem. And a friend of mine, John Justice, was at the time the sports information director at wake forest and i'm sitting you know this is before cell phones texts all that and i'm sitting in the office and my phone rings and it's john he said get down here right now this kid is tearing it up every college coach in the country is watching him it's amazing get down here so i told my my editor and he said pack your bags go and so off to Winston Salem I went, and t- to watch this kid. And everybody was right. All all the coaches were just gobsmacked at at his gifts. And you know we ended up playing in the championship game against a North Carolina team that included included Jerry Stackhouse, Jeff McGinnis, and a young Jeff Capel. I mean quite the collection but iverson in in his group won and and the group also included tony rutland his his running mate at bethel high school they were in the in the same backcourt mm-hmm. rutland who of course played with duncan at wake but that was that was the start
0: yeah it, it you know you saw iverson progress from that obviously through his his legal issues when he was there in high school and then into Georgetown, into his pro ranks. Um, what's your favorite Iverson memory? Because you saw him go through this whole trajectory.
1: My favorite Iverson memory is is before all the legal stuff, before Georgetown, before the NBA. And I sat with him in the bleachers at Bethel High School one day after practice, just the two of us, I don't know, half hour and just talking about basketball and life. And he was, I found him very likable and engaging and suffice to say, we've had some tense moments since, but it's, it's all good. Whenever we see each other, you know, we, we embrace and he just goes Dave in that gravelly voice of, of his and uh, it, it was just it was cool to see him get in the hall of fame and how emotional he was about that and how much it, it meant to him
0: yeah the grit to his game was always so so impressive you mentioned boo williams earlier in that that basketball tournament he has and i want to go to something you wrote in 2014 hmm. about attending boo williams annual prep basketball tournament in 2005 so this mm-hmm. is about the two thousand and five tournament. You wrote, "I saw a can't miss kid. He was six foot nine, a brilliant long range shooter, and a graceful athlete. This kid could be better than Kevin Garnett." I thought, "Who was that player?"
1: Another Kevin, KD. Kevin Durant. Kevin, <laughs> Kevin Durant. It, it was crazy. It, this was back. Right now, Boo Williams has a complex in in hampton with like eight courts where where he can, can where he can stage these tournaments in one venue back then there was no boo williams sportsplex and his tournament was scattered all over the region at different high schools and i went over to to, to watch this dc area team over at phoebus high and weren't many of us in the bleachers i forget who i'd gone there to watch but it wasn't Durant. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Whoa, I need to know more about this guy. And that's who it was. And of course, you know, he ends up at Texas and one of the all time NBA greats.
0: You know, one of the biggest changes you will have seen from your game, seen from the game throughout your career was when you started covering, you know, High school, college basketball. A guy like Durant, a six nine, six ten guy, would be parked in the post. <laughs> and now you got six nine guys bringing the ball up the floor. You know, and so what a massive change you saw. And it, you know, how do you kind of reconcile how the game has changed in that regard?
1: Well, I think we can all we we can trace it to the three point shot, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Hey, nineteen nine. That's where it comes from. So
1: <laughs> yeah, it, no, it, it, it you really can and once that came into the college game you know that's what kids practiced and n- no matter whether you were 6'10" or 6 foot that's what folks want, wanted to to shoot and th- they became so proficient at it and you see so much more four out one in or maybe even five out no one in offense and you know, some people's. You know, Bob Ryan, the the irascible former columnist for the Boston Globe, who's forgotten more basketball than any of us know. You know, he he still rails against the three point shot and uh, all the damage he thinks it's it's brought to the game. But hey, I enjoy watching athletes, uh, no matter the rules, and it's it's been fun to watch the evolution and and to see these these taller guys become so, so much more versatile.
0: You know, I I really believe we're going to see teams zig when everyone's zagging, meaning, you know, now we're seeing people take more, teams are taking more three-point shots than they do two-point shots. And we're going to have a team come along that just is going to put two burly six, 10 guys in the post and just beat right. everyone up. And that, that's going to happen. And, and that's going to be their formula. And, you know, we're going to see that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, and we'll probably all be wearing bell bottoms again sometime, right, man? Yeah,
0: very possible. You know, fashion like basketball is cyclical. So, right. Let's get back to ACC basketball as we as we head toward the finish line here, because I'm curious your perspective on a few different overarching ca- questions with respect to the league. So, sure. You've had this 40 year run covering ACC hoops. What was the specific ACC basketball team that you most enjoyed watching or covering?
1: I think if you force me to. To pick just one,
0: I'm forcing you, Dave. Yeah, forcing you.
1: <laughs> it, and and as as many of of Duke's teams national champions that I enjoyed being around, it would be the 2019 Virginia squad that won the national championship. Number one, because I work in and live in Virginia, and am most familiar with the state programs. Number two, I understand the roots of that championship and what happened the year before in Charlotte against UMBC to so many of those same players and to, to watch the resilience of Kyle guy and Ty Jerome and Deandre Hunter and all that group, you could not have authored a more redemptive, story than that. And it was you just as a writer, you just tried not to get in the way and and just try to let them tell the story themselves. And and then of course their path to the national championship. You know, the 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 regional final, you know, against Purdue where Jerome misses the free throw on purpose and it goes into the backcourt, and Kia Clark throws the pass to Diakite, who has to just turn and shoot it at the buzzer to force overtime, and 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 then the, the the crazy ending to the semifinal in Minneapolis against Auburn, and then going OT against Texas Tech in the final after DeAndre Hunter just hits hits that just cold-blooded shot out of the corner. To get them to overtime, it's that that's my favorite team.
0: I gotta tell you, one of I think you use the word redemptive, you use the word resilience in that answer, and I think that Virginia team from I mean, keep in mind that UMBC game when they're when they're the first sixteen to knock off a number one seed in the tournament, I mean, that was a twenty point game. That that yep. wasn't even particularly close in the second half. No. And what a waxing. And for those guys to come back and win the title the next year and endure everything along that way. I mean, that, that's a pretty remarkable story. Um, you know, and, and led by a remarkable coach and coach Bennett. So I'm going to ask yep. you, ACC, you got coach Bennett, you got coach K, you got Dean Smith, Velvano, lefty. You got all these guys you've seen Lefty. What coach was the most impressive to you? And I'm going to let you interpret that word impressive any way you want. <laughs> but who really impressed?
1: Danny, it's hard to get any more impressive than, Five national championships and just decades of excellence, which is what Mike Shishovsky has authored at Duke, and and the way he's adapted, you know, he 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 went from f- developing four year guys over the year a Shane Battier who as a freshman was just kind of a role player. And by the time he was a senior, he was a national player of the year. And then one in Duns and, and he, he embraced that and, and won a national championship that way. And just to, to, to watch him over the decades, I remember sitting in his office one day with him and th- this was in 2000, this would have been 2010. And we were talking about just leadership and how he studies it all the time, not just in sports, but in business and in life and how he's cultivated relationships with leaders in the military and in the corporate world and how he reads about it voraciously. And it, it was just fascinating to to, to listen to him. Um, he's He's the most impressive coach.
0: Absolutely. So we have in the ACC seen a lot of great players over the years. certainly in your time there, way too many to even name. So I'm curious about, though, who you thought was the most like kind of like criminally underrated player, like a guy who you feel maybe never got his due. And you're like, God, people don't understand just how good that guy was.
1: As a college player, Ty Jerome at UVA, we were just talking about, the Cavaliers' national championship run. Ty Jerome never made first-team All-ACC. I voted him first-team All-ACC in both his sophomore and junior seasons. And I was always in the minority. I was like, you know, doesn't anybody get it? I mean, that dude was so clutch. And he was fearless. You know, New York kid, son of a coach. I mean, he was... I just loved watching him play. Just a terrific shooter. You know, not in Kyle Guy's league as a shooter, granted. But I I thought he was very much underrated. I'll throw another one at you. Even though he ended up, he's in the Hall of Fame. But as a freshman and sophomore, Grant Hill was just kind of an afterthought on those Leighton or Hurley teams. But he was the difference.
0: Absolutely. yeah. I
1: mean, because in 1990, they get boat raced in the national championship game by Vegas. In 91, Grant Hill's there as a freshman. And he's there again in 92, and they win it all. And then as a senior in 94, with no Hurley, no later, he somehow dragged that bunch, which is, a, by Duke standards, just an okay team. He dragged that bunch to the national championship game, one they arguably should have won against Arkansas. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. You know, that, that might be the more impressive feat was dragging that senior, his senior year, putting them in the, in the championship game. Um, All right. You've been in all the ACC arenas, past and present, it seems. What's your favorite ACC arena to catch a game?
1: It's probably still Cameron. Just because of the history, number one. Number two, it's one of the few where we're still courtside, which is such a privileged view to watch a game. Now it can get a little tight in there because they're all, you know, the the crazies are leaning over you and they're yelling in your ear and they're elbowing your shoulders and it it gets a, a little cramped and claustrophobic, but there's nothing like being in Cameron, especially for Duke Carolina.
0: Oh, I think you're making a lot of people jealous, myself included. You know the ACC has some programs with a with impressive basketball histories, but a number of them have kind of failed to kind of recapture that glory, so to speak, of late. So who do you see as the conference's kind of sleeping giant today?
1: I would say NC State, because you you're talking about a program day with multiple national championships. Norm Sloan in 74, Jimmy V in 83. Granted, a long time ago. But I sense an, an opportunity, not only for NC State, but also the rest of the league. Because Duke and North Carolina are in transition. Carolina from Roy Williams to Hubert Davis right now. Duke next season from Coach K to John Shire. Will John Shire and Hubert Davis turn out to be great hires? They very well may end up that way but there's there's going to be some i'm not even sure if slippages but there's going to be an opportunity for other programs to get back in in the mix here and i i think nc state you know right there in the shadow of duke and carolina you know ken kevin keats and his staff recruit well enough you know to to get the wolf pack back near the top of the league cuz if you're ne- if you're near the top of the league you've got a chance nationally
0: what do you think the formula is for a place like nc state because they are literally quite literally in the shadow of yeah. unc and duke uh these two you know heralded programs so what do you think the formula is for a program like that to be competitive at a consistent level and reach the promise and potential that, you know, you think they have.
1: Yeah, well, it's all about player player recruitment. You got to have guys. And NC State's got plenty to sell, resources, the arena. Yeah, I know it's not on campus, but, you know, what a great place to play. And when they're good, that place rocks. And, you know, challenge prospects. You want to come – Compete, you know, let's go slay the Dragons next door. Let's go beat Duke in North Carolina. And, you know, there's only 13 scholarships on a Division I college basketball roster. They all can't go to Duke, Carolina, and Kentucky. You can get your fair share at an NC State or a UVA or a Georgia Tech or a Louisville. I
0: want to stick on this a little because, you know, one of the things is, once these college players maybe have success, you know they've been jumping to the NBA, you know. So if you have a nice run at NC State, you know, if 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 a player leads that run through March Madness, odds are he's off to the NBA the next season. He's gonna he's gonna strike while the iron's hot. How do you think NIL is gonna change some of this?
1: I'm not, if at all. Yeah, I'm not sure that it will, and it's it's so new, Danny. Since July, we we we, we have no data, really. T- to work with. So it, it's almost Im- Im- impossible to tell. I, I was I was talking with some some marketing and legal types just yesterday actually about NIL. And their take was it's a whole lot less lucrative out there than you think for ninety nine point nine percent of college athletes. It really is. You know, will Will Bryce Young, will a quarterback at Alabama, and will a generational talent such as Zion Williamson cash in? Absolutely. But for a vast majority, you know, even starters in, in, in the ACC and the NBA prospects, it, it may not be this transformational change that a lot of people anticipate.
0: I want to close it here. You know, we we call this series "Going on Press Row" here at nineteen nine, where we've talked with some of the games, you know, scribes and chroniclers, and, and you're among them here. And what have you most enjoyed about your job over this last forty years? You know, particularly as it relates to covering ACC basketball.
1: Just the the opportunity to to, to witness history. You know, I I often joke with with, with folks that sports writing has offered me perpetual adolescence i mean I, I, I never had to grow up i you know this is what i do f- for a living and to to be able to, to to watch you know what over the decades has been the best college basketball conference in the country has been nothing short of a privilege i mean i've been to every acc tournament since 1984 it's my favorite weekend of the year. I, I enjoy it more than I do the Final Four. Well, you've seen
0: college greatness up front, David, and we appreciate you joining us here on the 99 Podcast here today and sharing some great
1: memories. My pleasure, Danny. Thanks for having me, man. Thank you for listening to
0: the Nineteen Nine Podcast. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, make sure you do. And while you're at it, leave us a rating or review. Five stars only, like the basketball camp. We also have links to all of 19.9 social media so you never miss a release. Until next time.